0: Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you could bridge the gap between your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me this beautiful Saturday morning in studio is Kit Cross, our producer. Good morning, Kit.
1: Hey, good morning. Hoping that everyone is having a wonderful weekend.
0: You can catch us Each Saturday here on Relevant Radio AM 1330 at 11 a.m. You can also catch up on past episodes online. Just visit mncatholic.org slash podcast. And of course, you can find us on your favorite podcast apps such as SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live out our faith in public life. And we'll also answer your questions through our mailbag. You can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org. But feel free to connect with us also on social media through Facebook, Instagram. Or Twitter, and it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you could build bridges um, between your faith and public life through our bricklayer segment that concludes each episode. So look forward to that at the bottom of this show. Today we're joined uh, by Chris Arnotti. He is the author of Dignity: Seeking Respect in Back Row America. I can tell you it is an incredibly powerful book and an important photojournalistic look at the poor and vulnerable who are too often forgotten and ignored it really i can't say enough about this very fine book and i'm delighted that chris has joined us today all the way from new york Uh, chris welcome to the bridge builder show
2: um thank you for having me
0: say a little bit about um the book's title i think it captures a lot in one word dignity how has your understanding of human dignity changed through this uh multi-year project that culminated in the publication of this fine book
2: right i mean i think um the way i think about it is. what you what i learned at least and what i hope the readers of the book take away from it um is no matter how tough people's situation is no matter how how um how rough the circumstances they find themselves in um there's a um resilience to people that uh i feel gets kind of uh, reflected in 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 their their desire for dignity and, and, and how they can often live their lives in a dignified way in a situation, in in, in places where you would, you know, be hard-pressed to imagine that happening.
0: What, um, in many sense, you call this the back row America. Where did where does that image come from, and why do you call it back row America and, and say that this is, you know, there's a difference between front row and back row America? What do you mean by those distinctions?
2: I think... One of the things that struck me over the over the course of the five years um, in driving across the country so many times was there were these communities that I think we whatever term I use for them it's going to be demeaning unfortunately because that's the way we we we've, we've structured our world um, stigmatized communities left behind communities poor communities, um, ghettos that, no matter where they were and no matter the race of the residents had a very had we're all very familiar in many ways like you know uh gary indiana felt very much like prestonburg kentucky even though one was a steel town um, all black steel town that was facing a hard time and the other was um you know an all-white coal mining town and what struck me was m- most of the residents in these towns um were educationally the same they both they they hadn't gone to much college beyond uh, much education beyond high school they might have gone to community college and the neighborhoods i the neighborhood i had lived in and the neighborhoods that we celebrate so much of the media and so much of our politicians come from are <clears throat> neighborhoods where people who have a lot of education live and I started realizing that so much of our divisions and we talk about divisions so much in this country these days you know racial and wealth division is is about education and that really informs deeply how many of us view the world and it almost provides us with different languages we speak those of uh, those of us like myself who have advanced degrees and you know and uh, from from elite schools and and then those who just finish high school and maybe go to trade school
0: how is it that? Uh, it's So often the case that those in in poorer communities are hidden from our view. Is it is it that we choose not to see, or is it because um, we live such isolated and insular lives, or what? What do you attribute that to?
2: I think it's both. I think, <clears throat> I mean, it's not something people want to see, and you know, part of the project began initially with the with that note, with that realization, is that I think when you don't really stop and look at a homeless person or don't stop and, and look and talk to someone who's going through an addiction, it's easy to, to give them a story, a backstory that makes it their fault, You know that, that blames them for their problems, that they're just weak, um, they're stupid um, or, or, or lazy. And when you actually bother to talk at length, that, what is often... Realizes that that person has had a there's a lot more to their story than than, than perhaps personal failings, and that perhaps they're the product of a system that chews them up and spits them out. Um, and so I think it's easier to, <laughs> to, it's easier as a successful person to think that it's that person's fault as opposed to think that it's 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 the, the system's fault. I mean, you know, because it just absolves you of responsibility.
0: Your, your book reminds me of, about another journalistic project where someone uh, just randomly opened the phone book and called someone and talked to them and got their story, and the premise was everyone's got a story, and I think your book really captures that uh, very, very well. Um, how do we overcome, in your opinion, Chris, the segregation between back row and front row America?
2: Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I, it's so hard to come up with a solution to a problem so deep that, you know, I one of the things I back away from in the book is, is talking about policy because I just don't think policy can, can handle the depth of our problems right now. I mean, it, it requires a, a different, you know, a different attitude amongst everybody in terms of how they think about other people and how they think about their own um, privilege and how they think about their own success. You know, it also requires people to, to um Get it. Get a little bit. Get out of their, you know, their comfort zone a little bit, and um, and explore um, places that might not feel to them entirely um, safe, for instance, or or or, or ha- having much to offer them. You know, we tend to live in these bubbles more and more, and it's become easier and easier. When I was growing up, you know, I grew up in a small working-class town in the south. You. you no matter who, everybody in the city went to the same school. Everybody in the city interacted with each other, and it just doesn't seem that way anymore. And I don't know why that is. What's caused people to kind of feel like um, they don't really need to interact with people who are their political difference, who, who have political differences with them, who who have economic differences with them, who are racially different with them? It just feels very much like there's a lot of fear of dealing with other people.
0: Pope Francis has really hit on a theme that I think your book captures well, which is nurturing opportunities for encounter, encountering with those who are different from us, have different circumstances, economic, socially, culturally, uh, even geographically in some instances. And we need to foster encounters that we overcome what he calls a culture of indifference. Um, and get out of our comfort zones, just like you said, and engage the humanity and needs of others. How do you think your book can help Catholics do that, and whether, what other suggestions might you have for you know folks who don't have the ability to drive around cross-country and sit in McDonald's and just listen to people um, uh, for long periods of time? What can we do practically to foster that encounter that we think that can uphold the dignity of other people?
2: I mean, you know, one of the things I, I did in my journeys is I spent a lot of time in churches, um, I did that intentionally. Um, I myself am not particularly religious, although I was raised Catholic. Um, I would attend different services, no matter where I was. I often attended um, Catholic masses or Catholic services here and there, um, and often I'd see that the congregation was very diverse. Um, and I think, but yet, even though the congregation was diverse,
0: there was, there
2: was a segregation, not intentional, but self segregation, going on where the um, maybe the you know the, the Hispanic members of the community sat in a you know certain section of the church and, and, and then I think reaching out to people within your own congregation and just out of curiosity just ask you know um, asking them you know you know just say saying, saying more than good morning just asking them a little bit about their life story and seeing if there's anything you can do for them or they can do for you um, you know beyond that I think within the you know the, our towns are so much more diverse these days. There are, there are back row and front row communities in every town. I mean, in New York City, there, are, you know, where I spent the first three years of my book was in a was in a poor neighborhood that's been long stigmatized by racism and long stigmatized by poverty. And it's only 15 minutes away from the wealthiest neighborhood in New York, and there are people in that wealthiest neighborhood who've never gone to the poorest neighborhood. So I think within within the small community you live in, it's very easy to find. Go literally go across the tracks um and and, and w- with an open mind um, and sit and just talk to people with a with a genuine sense of um, you know not just wanting to save people but wanting just to just to, to interact with them on a level that 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 gives them dignity just as another person
0: yeah, we don't need to always go on mission trips right to encounter those in need. I think, uh, Chris, a lot of our listeners wouldn't necessarily describe themselves as back row America or front row America, but maybe middle row America, <laughs> maybe uh, trying to get into the front row, but maybe two bad decisions away from the back row. Um, what can folks perhaps in middle row America do to, you know, build a bridge between front row and back row America?
2: I think, you know, again, I think it's it's a matter of, um, first of all, being, you know, letting themselves be heard. Um, I think there are there are political solutions to our problems. I, I happen to come from the left, but I don't want to pound people with that because you know I think that kind of mi- that mini- saying that just minimizes the possible other solutions. Um, I, I think trying to engage people, both you know, if you're middle row, and I think there's less and less of those these days, unfortunately. Um, if you are trying to engage people, you know, in both the front and back row, do so in a way that you don't stereotype them, you know, and, and treat them as equals, um, and ask to be treated as an equal. Um, I think again, a lot to, to me, so much of it is just about really getting out of your comfort zone and, and trying something new, you know, if, you know, it can be small as like if you go to a McDonald's and it one section of town, try going to McDonald's in another section of town, you know, and, and you might be surprised by the people you meet. Um, and, 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 uh, and, you know, if you have a restaurant you really like and it's, you've been going there a lot, go there. But, you know, try another one across town that, you know, might, might, might have a reputation that you, in the neighborhood that reputation that feels a little bit dodgy. But, you know, I think can offer you a lot of experiences. And I know certainly within, your, within your, your home base, I think the Somali community offers a lot of opportunities to kind of reach out and, and, and see how others live and, and listen to how others live.
0: You know one of the neat and really interesting things about your book, I think, for Catholics is the way in which you highlight spirituality and in a prophetic way the maybe perhaps the spiritual poverty of some of those in the front row and not to be judgmental, but also the spiritual hunger and deep spiritual capacity of those in the back row. Um, say a little bit more about that
2: yeah my probably my biggest learn um, for me was um was the power of faith and how faith how how central faith is to to so many people but it's not just central it's it's the faith as a true power not just as something people use to get by you know i i i myself was raised catholic in a in a town that's was 95% 98% catholic i worked at a monastery as my first job um But I was never religious. Um, Beyond after that, I I went into got a PhD in in physics and uh, went into the very secular world and left behind my religion very quickly. And uh, although I was never, and I would consider myself an atheist, and although I was never somebody, I was never one of those atheists who who made fun of religion. That's just not who I am. I was surrounded by people who were, who would make fun of religion. And when I walked into the Bronx. And spent time with homeless addicts I fully had expected that this group of people would be the ones who would most understand my atheism and it was the opposite they were some of the most um, uh, deeply spiritual people I met and in and, 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 and craving for spirituality and as a scientist I couldn't ignore that I mean it was you know no matter what my prior views were I had to, I had to recognize that there was something here in, in in the Bible and the Quran and and whatever spiritual book there was that that really resonated with people, even though it didn't quote resonate with me and I had to rethink why it didn't resonate with me. It wasn't that they, you know I think the first thought was it resonates with them they need it but then I started thinking, well maybe it doesn't resonate with me because I don't see it because I have too much privilege to see the power of of, the, of these of these books.
0: You eschew policy prescriptions in your book, and uh, but you did highlight it earlier in our conversation, the importance of education, the way in which education is a common thread in, in some of uh, your explorations and travels and discoveries. Do you think education policy is one place and perhaps uh, a place where we can potentially level the playing field uh, more between back row and front row America? Um,
2: certainly. I think one of the problems is, you know, we... We overvalue certain educational experiences and we undervalue other ones. I mean, I one of the places I went, wherever I, wherever, whatever town I was in, I would go to the local community college. I think we need to give a lot more. We as a culture and business and the business community needs to give a lot more recognition to the the, student, the, the people who attend these schools, and the education they get, and certainly a lot more recognition for. Um, uh, the people, the, the people who work in these schools, um, smaller religious schools as well. You know, we we tend to look at maybe a handful of colleges and say, this is the place. You know, this is the most important place. You have to go here. And if you, if you don't go here, somehow that's lacking. Um, so I think we need, and I don't know how we do that through policy um, beyond, you know, providing more funds for these smaller schools. Um, but I also think. You know, as much as I respect education, there, there's a problem with our educational system in that when we when we say, you know, anybody can do it, all you have to do is study hard and work hard, um, you can you can have the most uh, you can be, you can move yourself up. Well, that I understand the the I understand why people say that. The flip side of that is that if somebody can't do that, and they, because of a whole host of reasons, because of family obligations, because it's maybe not what they want to do, um, because of um, secondary opportunities, um, because obstacles put in their way, it somehow is their fault. And I think that's a really bad um, message to take away, that, that if you can't succeed in our system, which I think is a very narrowly defined definition of success, then somehow it's your fault. And I think we need to rethink Um, how much we elevate education as the only way to succeed.
0: Very, very insightful. Thank you for that. Before we go, Chris, is there anything else you'd want our listeners to know about your book or the people who you chronicle in it?
2: Um, I think it's, you know, I I hope there, there, there's so many people I met across the country over those, you know, three years driving that, um, it was really hard who to put in who to, which stories to highlight and which ones to leave on the cutting room floor you know i guess i would say if somebody reads the book and says well that's not the that's not my particular experience i you know what about blah i would i would just simply say you know <laughs> there's only so much you can put in a book and um i hope when people read it they also take away the idea that a message many of your readers already know listeners probably already know which is Um, Maybe it's something I had to remind myself and relearn is, before you judge anybody, walk a mile in their shoes. Um, Think about the context of their decision. Think about their surroundings. Think about what, you know, all those things you don't know when you just view them from a distance about why they do what they did. And if if that's the takeaway people get, you know, to to withhold judgment for a little bit, um, I would be very happy.
0: Outstanding. Outstanding. The book is Dignity, Seeking Respect in Backrow America. The author is Chris Arnati. Chris, very grateful for your time this morning. Thanks for this great project, and uh, we'll certainly be looking forward uh, to more of your work uh, uncovering the lives of the poor and vulnerable in our communities. Thanks so much, and blessings to you. All right.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Take care, and we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Program, where we help you connect Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now we have our mailbag segment, where we answer your questions and comments about the Church's work in the public arena. Uh, Again, you can send those questions to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on social media. Uh, Kit, what do we have today in the mailbag?
1: Yeah, so going through Facebook— We had a comment and question from Carol on Facebook. She wanted to ask us about the immigrant driver's license bill that was uh, brought forward in the legislative session this past session. And she simply wanted to know, why is the church getting involved in this issue?
0: Well, first, why it's uh, getting back to the basics, why the church gets involved in any public policy question, it comes out of our missionary engagement um, and our duty to love our neighbor. Um, Why the church gets involved in politics and public life is because it's a way in which Uh, we share our love for neighbor and work for their well-being to love someone is to work for their authentic good and we do that of course as christians in a number of different ways but one of those ways is through public life and that's why we seek to promote laws and uh, structures that promote human dignity and the common good so the immigrant driver's license um, Our bishops not just here in minnesota um, but uh, around the country, the immigration is a very very important question Um, we need to have comprehensive federal solutions um, at the at the federal level, immigration is generally a matter of federal law, and we need comprehensive solutions that resolve uh, how we can treat uh, the millions of undocumented who are already here for various reasons, but at the same time um, promote their well-being, give them some legal status and stability, and keep families together. And the basis of all Catholic engagement on the immigration question is family stability and keeping families together. I think that's the first principle. Now, unfortunately, the comprehensive immigration reform or immigration reform question um, has been gridlocked in washington and our congressional leaders have failed and and the president and not just this president but past presidents have failed to bring forward uh, legislation that provides a comprehensive reform so the question for us is what do we do at the state level in light of the failure uh to correct and fix a broken immigration system in washington and one of those um, things that we can do here is create driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants. Now, the reason we would do that um, and join 13 other states who've already done so is to provide a measure of stability for uh, people um, in our undocumented communities, people who fear every time they go out for a drive, uh, whether it's to church, to work, to school, wherever, that they're gonna be separated from their families, perhaps even permanently. Um, again, there's a, there's a lot of different reasons why people are here, and building on our uh, discussion with Chris Arnotti, uh, we don't know why they're here until we've walked a mile in their shoes, and there's a lot of different reasons for that. We've had an immigration policy for many years, which officially forbid people from coming across the border, but uh, implicitly, because we wanted cheap labor, welcome them to do so. So there's a lot of reasons for why people are here on, in an undocumented way, but we have to start with the premise that they're not going to be deported en masse, and they're not. So given the failure in Washington, given That premise that they're not going to be deported how can we create a measure of stability here for our undocumented brothers and sisters while we await comprehensive reform at the federal level and again it's about keeping families together providing a measure of peace Um, you know there's many of these folks uh, who are undocumented particularly the dreamers who've known no other country um, who are trying to get through school who have children who don't want to be separated from those children and those families simply because They are going out for a drive and they have a broken uh, taillight, for example, and get stopped and then swept up into um, the uh, federal immigration's Customs Enforcement. So uh, that's the main reason. Family stability, the importance of uh, keeping families together, creating uh, peace for those uh, who are here under the premise that we're not going to deport them. Um, and that's an important feature of this. It's not a rewarding. Uh, some people say, "Well, this is rewarding lawbreakers." Well, looking at it that from that perspective again undermines the various reasons why we have a broken immigration system and why people are here in the first place. It's it's it's, it's it uh, makes sense from an abstract level, but not when you look at the actual concrete realities. Uh, of the immigration system. Again, do we want to consign people to the shadows of our communities and uh, have them abandon our car, their cars when they get in an accident? Or do we want to create a measure of stability to create a bubble or a membrane between local law enforcement and federal law enforcement um, and provide a measure of peace for our immigrant communities? It's also an issue that benefits the common good precisely because it gives local law enforcement access to who's driving, who's on the road, where they live. It possibly lowers insurance rates because you have more people now who are insured, who are driving legally, who are trained and have undergone all the tests that everyone else has to be on the road. So we think it benefits both our immigrant brothers and sisters and it benefits the common good. And that's an important dimension of this. And it's therefore a very just policy um, that our bishops have strongly supported. It didn't get passed uh, this past legislative session, but we are hopeful that in 2020 it's back again on the table.
1: That's wonderful. So. Before we go today, we always like to give some really practical tips on how to start building bridges between faith and politics. How about a few ideas for our bricklayer segment?
0: So a just social order is built brick by brick. Our discipleship is built brick by brick, just as you don't um, start your prayer life off by trying to embrace the, the monastic rule. Uh, mm-hmm. we We start our work in the public arena and faithful citizenship brick by brick, and that can be as simple as like we discussed last week, just identifying who your legislators are and meeting them on the parade routes during the summer um, but also this week, I think we want to suggest to you that you know we often focus on federal and even state politics uh, as the place where all the action is, but actually, the real action happens at the even smaller local, more local level. Um, your school board, your city council, your county commissioners, uh, your soil and water conservation districts—these are actually the places that make most of the policies that impact you on a day-to-day basis. And at the same time, it's the place in which you, as a person and as a faithful citizen, can make the most difference you know what's going on in your community um, just as well as anyone else and better than someone in washington better than someone in saint paul per se and so you want to be in relationship with and engage with your local elected officials uh, because they're the ones who are making decisions about property taxes what's going on in the libraries um, whether or not you're going to have a drag queen story hour for example in your local public library as we did in ramsey county recently Um, your property taxes Uh, For example, how your roads get in the streets, get plowed, you know, some of the basic stuff of everyday living, uh, you know, what's going on in your local school district. These policies are made by people in uh, local office, and it's really incumbent upon us to get to know those folks. And at the same time, even consider running yourself. Um, We can do all the lobbying and public policy engagement as a church, but until we actually have good people, good solid Catholics in public office, it's going to be really difficult for the foreseeable future to enact laws that promote human dignity and the common good. So some of us have to embrace that call to responsibility and faithful citizenship and actually run for some of these positions at the county level, whether that's mayor of your community, county commissioner, school board. Uh, et, cetera, et cetera. So really, thinking more critically that politics happens not just at the level of state and at the federal level, but also right in your city or county or even school district as well.
1: That really gets at this idea of subsidiarity. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Well, subsidiarity. It's it's some people think it, liken it to federalism in our system, and there's a certain similarity, right? But it's less about the uh, localism per se as it mo- as it is you know what unit of government or what social actor is most able and is charged with responding to particular problems right so in the care and well-being of children for example the parents uh, have the role and responsibility to care for that child it's not the government's role so that when the government steps in and tries to parent it's subsuming the role wrongly of the parents in violating that principle of subsidiarity. In the same way in the political arena, social problems are best addressed by those who are closest to them, but also have the best capacity and role to solve them. So decisions about what happens in a local community are best resolved by people in that local community who are directly affected by them as opposed to a bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. So subs- this is the importance of local engagement, local politics. Um, is really a a matter of subsidiarity. And uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, really the best chronicler of American political life, even though his work is almost 200 years old now, talked about local politics as a school of political virtue. And we overlook this and cede it to others. But again, local politics, local rules, local laws are made by those who show up. So if we don't show up, someone else is going to show up. And yeah, we all like our Wednesday nights free, um, but at the same time, uh, if we don't make laws then we can uh, that, that promote human dignity and the common good, then we don't really have a right to complain about those who do. Thanks for joining us this week. We're at a wrap here. We've run out of time. But um, you can always learn more by signing up for the Catholic Advocacy Network at mncatholic.org. Um, you can find us on Facebook, SoundCloud, all your favorite apps. And make sure to reach out to us with your questions and concerns at show at mncatholic.org. Thank you for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and politics and live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, along with Kit Cross. Have a very blessed weekend.